your favorite Voice America Talk Radio Network shows and hosts are in your car, outdoors, and wherever you need them to be. Listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good night. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. Good morning. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone. You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. You can listen to us live every Wednesday morning from 10 to 11 Eastern. And you can also listen to my new show on Thursday mornings, The Social Workers on WCDB 90.9 FM in Albany, New York. I have two guests joining me this morning. My first guest is Dr. Tom Wang, president of the American Academy of Facial Plastic and Reconstructive Surgery, and he is here to talk about how the American Academy of Facial Plastic and Reconstructive Surgery offers survivors of domestic violence hope and healing through unique face face program. That's the title of the program. We're going to hear a lot more about that in the first half hour. And in the second half hour is Robert M. Missick. He is a uh, for, he's an author and a former FAA air traffic controller. His, the title of his new book is Crash and Burn, the Bureau Pathology of the Federal Aviation Administration. And he maintains that the FAA has not only failed to keep the skies safe, but has compromised that safety by creating a culture of deception, abuse, and unlawful behavior. But first, Dr. Tom Wang, welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning. It's my pleasure. Dr. Wang, I do want to mention the statistic, which is really horrific, actually. Domestic violence is the leading cause of injury to women. More than car accidents, muggings, and rapes combined, every nine seconds in the United States, a woman is assaulted. Uh, Those are not good statistics. So... Um, yeah, it's really a huge problem, and because it exists and so is so prevalent, we tend to almost ignore it. Uh, uh, and uh, our effort is try to uh, trying to bring that to, to back to our uh, attention. Why do you think we ignore it? I mean, I think the whole, and I agree with you. I think that uh, most people are not aware of this statistic. They don't want to be aware, and even when they hear about domestic uh, domestic violence, they close their eyes to it. Because of the social stigma attached to it, I'm guessing, would be one big reason. It is uh, indeed very prevalent. Over 5 million women a year are affected by domestic violence just in the United States alone, and uh, 1 million of these victims require medical attention. But uh, oftentimes, uh, the victims themselves are reluctant because of the situations that they're in to come forward and uh, try to break the cycle. Indeed, it's extremely difficult to get out of these types of relationships. And uh, this is uh, our face-to-face program. is just one way that we try to help uh, these, uh, these individuals. 
face-to-face program. What is it? You know, you talk about you offer survivors hope and healing. How do you do that through the face-to-face program? The face-to-face program is a humanitarian program of the American Academy of Facial Plastic and Reconstructive Surgery. This is a program which has three distinct components to it, of which the National Domestic Violence Project is one. The others are international uh, missions where surgeons volunteer and donate their time and uh, expertise to go abroad to third world countries to treat patients with uh, cleft lip and palate deformities. And the the third pro- arm of this is the Faces of Honor, whereby surgeons uh, uh, offer to assist uh, veterans uh, injured in the line of duty after returning back uh, from combat. But the National Domestic Violence Project is something that was started in 1994, uh, teamed up in conjunction with the National Coalition Against Domestic Violence, NCADV, uh, at the umbrella group for a majority of shelters in the United States. And this works uh, hand-in-hand with shelters in making sure that individuals are helped emotionally as well as physically. Part of the process with Working with the shelters is making sure that the individuals are uh, uh, receiving emotional and psychological support and healing with professional counseling, and that the victim is safely away from the violent relationship. Uh, Surgery can be performed to repair the damage to facial features and hopefully alleviate the painful memories of past abuse, and that's the goal of of our program. I'm talking to Dr. Tom Wang, if you're just joining us. He is the president of, and I'm going to say the acronym, AAFPRS, which is the American Academy of Facial, Plastic, and Reconstructive Surgery. Uh, and we're talking about the, face, his, or the face-to-face program. Uh, you know, Dr. Wang, you mentioned that uh, the, the program serves, well, it serves many populations, but this specific one that we've been talking about is, is, is uh, domestic violence survivors have access to uh, facial surgery, um, and also access to counseling. You combine that in, this, in the face-to-face program. It's kind of a multidisciplinary approach helping these survivors. Is that correct? That is absolutely right. We like to uh, make sure that this uh, recovery process is ongoing on multiple fronts, not just the, uh, the physical, but, of course, uh, equally important are the emotional and the psychological, and that's where the aid of the shelters and professional counseling becomes uh, paramount. Now, who makes the referrals? Do the patients themselves make the referrals, or do you get the referrals from probation? Do you get... Yes, the referrals can come from any source. There is a 24-hour toll-free number uh, from, from the AAFPRS and the NCADV, the National Coalition Against Domestic Violence, and you can get that number through the website. It's at 1-800-842-4546. And that's a 24-hour toll-free number for victims of domestic violence referrals. And uh, during the initial phone call, uh, some information is gathered and to determine if the uh, victim's injuries are indeed the result of domestic violence, if they are out of the abusive relationship, because, of course, we want that to be the case, there's... Uh, that that is most important to have the victims out of their harmful circumstances. It certainly doesn't make any sense to do the repairs and have them go right back into these uh, types of dangerous situations. And of course, obtain a 
brief description of the injuries that have been sustained during that phone call. At that point, the survivor uh, is given the name, if they're the ones making the phone call, of a domestic violence shelter in their local area and advised to set up an appointment with a counselor uh, in in the program there. And uh, this is to, one, help receive verification from independent source that the injuries are due to domestic violence and, of course, to ensure that all participants are attending a local uh, violence support program uh, to help them uh, along in this process. The, uh, it's anticipated that individuals requiring uh, services will have been out of their violent uh, situations for at least one year, and we find that that to be a very helpful, helpful guideline in assisting us with, uh, with these types of uh, procedures. Your services, yes, and who, yeah, who, how, and who does it? Is it through the the, the police or the this, probation? This could be uh, accessed by any number of sources. There is a twenty-four hour toll-free number that is available through our website, the AAFPRS or the NCADV, the National Coalition Against Domestic Violence. It's one eight hundred eight four two four five four six. And that is uh, staffed around the clock for the victims of domestic violence to call. And during the initial call, uh, the uh, some information, preliminary information, are obtained to determine if the injuries are the result of domestic violence, and uh, if the uh, if the victim is out of the abusive relationship. That's important, of course, and to obtain, of course, a brief description of the injuries that has been sustained. Right. So once you, I guess, ascertain that they're out of the out of the abusive relationship, then what happens? Take us through the process. Let's say uh, yes. somebody calls the toll the toll free number. Um, obviously, if they're calling on their own, they have to get up the courage to do that. Uh, then what? Who do they yes, see? Yes, it's a step by step yeah. process, and we try to streamline streamline it and make it as simple and straightforward as possible because we re- realize that oftentimes these individuals are in very difficult circumstances and as you said it does take the courage to uh, get up to make the phone call that initial first step once they've made the phone call then uh, they are given the name of a domestic violence shelter in their local area and advised to set up an appointment with a counselor at the at the shelter the the purposes for this are are twofold one is uh, this will allow the program to receive independent verification that the injuries are due to domestic violence and of course also to ensure that all participants are attending a domestic uh, support violence support program uh the uh, we typically anticipate that individuals requesting services will have been out of their violent uh, relationships and situations for at least one year and that's, of course, important from the standpoint that we don't want uh, these victims to go right back to these uh, dangerous uh, situations. So what ha- now, I-, I also want to mention the website because the website is www.facemd.org, right? People can reach you through the website or at least get information about face-to-face? Absolutely. Facemd.org, that is our website, F-A-C-E-M-D.org. Now, face-to-face. Um, I have a statistic here. It says face-to-face volunteers have helped approximately 3,500 people worldwide. I mean, you are a huge organization. Uh, what if, where specifically um, are, are you located? 
I am located in Portland, Oregon, at the Oregon Health and Science University, and uh, our members range, certainly in every state in the United States, over nearly 3,000 members uh, domestically, and we have a large number of international uh, surgeons uh, who are members as well. We have an international federation of facial plastic and reconstructive surgery, which uh, works jointly with us, but they're not part of the face-to-face program. Uh, Dr. Wang, are you out there in terms of, like, is your face on every hospital, say, in the United States? I mean, community hospitals, some of the big, I happen to be in New York, some of the big hospitals here. Are social workers and other doctors in other fields aware of what you do? I mean, since this is such a huge problem, and, of course, patients can come in the door, go through or come in the door through many different venues, as we mentioned before. Yes, we do try to uh, get the word out, as it were, on this program, in fact, the AAFPRS, American Academy of Facial Plastic and Reconstructive Surgery, is the first surgical group to take a stand against domestic violence. Uh, but um, our efforts have been focused not only in collaboration with the National Coalition Against Domestic Violence, but also on our web pages and advertisements, uh, print media, and so forth. Uh, but uh, you can never have too much awareness uh, for dealing with a problem as serious and as pervasive as this. What are some of the worst problems that you've encountered personally as a surgeon and that you've seen in terms of domestic violence? Of the dis- uh, oh, yes. Well, we've, had, uh, we've dealt with uh, individuals uh, who have sustained lacerations and cuts to their face uh, and uh, eyes and lips and so on. Uh, that's a very common, unfortunate uh, uh, issue. And, of course, uh, the, there are significant numbers of fractures sustained to the eye sockets, uh, fractures of the nose, occasional jaw fractures from these types of injuries, and more horrifically, of course, gunshot wounds, which can be terribly, terribly difficult to, uh, to reconstruct. But we have, uh, in our practice, have dealt with... Uh, all of these types of injuries over over the past uh, 15 or so years. So after you've completed the surgery and the patient has at least physically recovered, is, what kind of follow-up is there in terms I mean, I assume this is, you know, obviously when you change the external and you, this is what you're about, but you change, you know, people... The, the physical, then, then we would hope that one's feelings of self-esteem would get better and, and you know, combined with therapy, you know, these women That's would That's exactly be, right, yeah. yeah. This, uh, this recovery or rehabilitation process is by no means just limited to the, to the facial surgical procedures, and we recognize that, uh, of course. But uh, it uh, forms an important component of the rehabilitation process. The other components of which, of course, are the, uh, the psychological, the emotional, and then there are associated issues, the, uh, the social, the financial, and so on. In many cases, there are children and uh, kids to be considered. And so it's a, uh, it's a global issue affecting the individuals, and that's why it's important to partner with domestic violence shelters in the victim's local uh, hometown and, and local region so that uh, they do receive support on these multiple fronts as they move forward. Um, Again, it's it's, uh, sometimes they are entrapped or they feel they're entrapped in these very difficult, uh, dangerous circumstances, and uh, 
have feel like they literally have no way out other than to sustain the abuse in order to protect their children and so on. And so uh, uh, fixing and, uh, the uh, outer, yeah, also outer I was going to say that you, part of it. you know, if they don't get this, the help that you're getting them in the facial surgery and they have the scars, I mean, if they're always if one is always looking in the mirror at these scars, it's going to be a constant reminder Absolutely. of the abuse. And this kind that's of exactly right. Of, that's the yeah. oftentimes we look at our face. That's the first thing we see every morning when we get up, look in the mirror, and we see our faces. And if you see the scar, you see the crooked nose or the nasal fractures, nasal injuries. You can't breathe out of your nose. There are functional uh, relevance as well then that is an immediate and constant reminder of the previous trauma, and that's something that surgical correction can help alleviate the, the physical issues as well as hopefully some of the emotional and psychological baggage uh, attached to these types of injuries. Tell us a, a couple stories that have had good endings or that you've had, I assume, that you've followed up with, patients that you've mm-hmm. seen, that you've yes, helped. Yes, these patients that come to us, they are treated as any of our patients um, in our practice. In other words, they receive the same excellent level of care from all of our staff and uh, our surgical team and, the, of course, the follow-up. And so, for instance, uh, we had a lady who had uh, sustained uh, multiple beatings uh, by her previous husband uh, to her face that caused uh, severe nasal fractures uh, that was uh, quite disfiguring, but more importantly, uh, functionally debilitating so that she couldn't breathe out of her nose. It interfered with her daily, everyday activities, certainly interfered with her ability to do any physical or aerobic uh, exercise, and uh, significantly altered her sleep pattern because she couldn't breathe out of her nose. And uh, she came, she went through the process, the program, was enrolled, got out of her bad relationship, was supported and had local and family support. And uh, I went ahead and uh, corrected her nasal surgery. It required significant reconstruction. We had to use some rib cartilage from her chest cage and to rebuild the bridge of her nose and support structures and we're able to get things straightened up for her and uh, more importantly the internal nasal passageways uh, opened up again and she was able to breathe for the first time out of her nose after many years of not being able to do so. We follow these patients uh, actually indefinitely. We uh, once they become part of the practice they become they join the, uh, our extended family, as it were, and we like to follow these patients to make sure that they continue to, that they heal well and continue to do well over time. And so, these I follow some of these patients for well over ten years, and they continue to be uh, stable and healthy and remain in healthy relationships. Uh, sometimes just being by on their own and being able to be independent, which is uh, as also can be very healthy as well. But uh, that's one of the more common scenarios. And then I think most commonly are, uh, for whatever reason, the facial lacerations, a means of scarring or marking a person's face, is, uh, is particularly disfiguring and debilitating. It, uh, it's a stigma that uh, the whole world can see. And, uh, it's can... like a branding almost. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. It's, uh, it's kind of sadistic and perverse in the psychology of why that happens. It's not as functional, de- functionally debilitate, debilitating unless it crossed the lips or the eyelids or some such, 
but it does definitely mark uh, or brand, as you say, the person as as an individual who is has been uh, suffered this violence. And uh, fortunately, our methods of scar revision have uh, advanced to the point where we can minimize the obviousness or the appearance of these types of scars and trauma injuries to the point of being virtually imperceptible. But it's also a process. It's not something that, unlike the injury that was sustained probably in in a flash, in in a fraction of a second, uh, the healing takes months and months. We have to excise the original scar, remove oftentimes some debris or embedded glass if there were any in the wound that can be occasionally spitting out months or years later, sanitize and sterilize the area, and repair it very meticulously in a fashion that will help blend it in with our so-called resting smile lines in the face. And then we come back uh, three to four months later and we do laser or dermabrasion sanding treatments to blend in the incisions and the scars further. And the healing process there for that takes up to a year to complete. It sounds to me, Dr. Wang, that the healing process, and it is a the physical healing process, may go hand in hand with the psychological healing process. They sort of can ha- happen at the same time because that too doesn't happen in a day. So No, that's, uh, you're absolutely correct. And the healing process... Uh, is uh, one that needs to have been initiated before we would consider the uh, undertaking the physical process. The physical process, in some respects, is the easier of the two because it's surgical and uh, we're surgeons and we can provide that. But it really takes the an incredible amount of initial effort on the part of the victims to make that first step to take, you know, to make that phone call, that first phone call to try to get themselves out of the relationship while protecting their personal safety and the safety of their of their children. Do you recommend, or is this part of the program, a uh, group, uh, I say group therapy or a group works, group support that you put women in a support group with a, obviously with a therapist or with a counselor uh, to, um, you know facilitate this whole healing process? Yes, indeed, we do. We recommend that all uh, women who contact us through this program uh, do enroll in a local domestic violence uh, shelter with counseling, and uh, the specific form of counseling is up to the individual shelter and the individual organization, whether it's be group or or one-on-one, but uh, everyone uh, needs and can benefit from that interaction, and in fact, that's uh, essential. Dr. Wang, we only have a couple more minutes, so I think what I'd like to do is just to make it sure that listeners know where they can uh, access you, the 800 number, as well as the website, because those who are listening may themselves want to... uh, you know, uh, are victims of domestic violence, or or they may know somebody else. I guess maybe that's my last question. Let's say you have a sister, a friend, or somebody who you, who you know needs help but is afraid to call. Can that person call you and get some uh, information or some help in terms of how to bring that person into the into the mix? Absolutely. I think uh, some of the uh, most important aspects are if uh, you are aware or suspect that something may be amiss in a loved one's relationship and if they show up with a black eye or bruising and they say, oh, I bumped into the 
car door or some such or a cabinetry and your your suspicions are raised, I think it's appropriate to ask that person if something is wrong and of course express concern and and be available and listen and offer help if you can and support his or her decisions don't uh, don't wait for them to come to you um, uh, don't ever judge or blame or pressure this individual or give advice just uh, offer your support and put no conditions on it. The best way to to contact us to get started, of course, as we had mentioned, is the facemd.org website, www.facemd.org. Or there is an 800 number, which is listed on that website. It's 1-800-842-4546. Thank you. Dr. Thomas Wang, a president of the American Academy of Facial Plastic and Reconstructive Surgery, and uh, heads up the program, the face-to-face program. Um, thanks so much for being on the show today. Lots of really good information. Thank you so much for the good work Great. you do, Catherine. Thanks. Bye-bye. Uh, we're going to be back in a minute, and uh, my guest is Robert Missick, author of Crash and Burn, the Bureaupathology of the Federal Aviation Administration. You're listening to the Catherine Zox Show. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone. We'll be back in a minute. Don't go away. Want to know what's going on behind the scenes with your favorite Voice America Talk Radio Network host? How about what's new with our network? Make sure you check out the iRadio blog, a look at what's hot at Voice America and beyond. Visit www.iradioblog.com today. Get the inside scoop on every channel on our network, including breaking news, featured guests, blog posts from our hosts, and much more. Make sure you sign up for our newsletter for even more inside action. Visit iradioblog.com today and stay connected. Go behind the scenes of what you see, hear, and read on the news. Learn the ins and outs of public relations on Stars of PR with Cindy R. Every Thursday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time. Cindy Rakowitz is a Clio Award winner and founder of Rock and Roll Public Relations who wants to share her PR experiences and knowledge with you. Learn how to handle a crisis, deal with celebrities, and become a terrific PR executive. Listen to the stars of PR with Cindy R. every Thursday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time here on News Talk Radio, voiceamerica.com. Michelle Kors, Six Degrees is your connected consciousness. Six Degrees is what comes around, goes around radio. Committed to delivering a fresh perspective on thought-provoking, investigative information that can change your life. Six Degrees connects you to the social and emotional scene and is your trusted advisor from finance to romance, mainstream to metaphysical. It's a positive, upbeat look at life, love, and the pursuit of passion. Get connected Saturdays at 10 a.m. Pacific, 1 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. We're back. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. You're listening to VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio live every Wednesday mornings from 10 to 11 Eastern Time. And uh, once the show is over and it, we archive it in the evening, so you can listen. For, then you can listen from now and 
perpetuity. But coming up uh, right now is Robert Nisitch. He is the author of Crash and Burn, The Bureau Pathology of the Federal Aviation Administration, and he was a former FAA air traffic controller. He was based in Miami, Florida. He was a facility representative of the National Air Traffic Controllers Association and lobbied Congress on behalf of NACCA for the betterment of the flying pu- public. And according to him, we have a lot of there. We have problems here in River City, I guess, uh, real serious problems with the FAA. He maintains that uh, the FAA has not only failed to keep the skies safe, but has compromised that safety by creating a culture of deception, abuse, and unlawful behavior. That's what we're going to be talking about today. Welcome to the show, Robert. Nice to have you on. Good morning. I'm very happy to be with you. And as I said to you right before we got on the air, your book is really scary for someone who travels a lot, and I do, not only in the United States, but around the world. So as I'm, you know, your book is very specific in terms of what's wrong with this bureaucracy, and you call it a bureaupathology. Perhaps we should define bureaupathology. What does that mean? Well, it's the irrational aspects of bureaucracy, in, in short. Okay, so you're talking about the FAA specifically. And yeah, specifically. Uh, pretty much every federal agency has similar problems, but I think with the FAA it really hits home with uh, the public because most people fly. Yeah. That's, you know, as I was reading the book, I thought, yes, you know, you think about the federal government and a lot of the things that you mention in the book, and we're going to talk about those, it's like, what else is new? I mean, this is what's wrong with state government, federal government. We have these kinds of problems, but now you're talking about public safety. And how many people are we talking about? Let's kind of define the problem. When we talk about how many people fly every year, who are we talking about? Do we have a statistic? Well, controllers work uh, 50,000 uh, flights a day. So if you multiply that by 365 days in the year, that's quite a, quite a large number. So we're talking millions of people are affected. And how are they affected? Let's let's just uh, what what are the main problems that you see? And I think you list two or three uh, categories of, of problems with the FAA that's compromising our safety as consumers. Well, one of the, the main problems is that the FAA's legislative charter charges uh, gives them the uh, responsibility of not only uh, looking after aviation safety but promoting the airlines. And one of the things that Congress has got to do is they've got to change that legislative mandate to make safety the FAA's sole mission. Uh, primarily, the FAA looks at the airlines as their customer and not the the passenger or the taxpayer. Uh, going back to 1996, Federico Pena, who was the Department of Transportation Inspector General, went before Congress, uh, pretty much prompted by the value jet crash in the Florida Everglades, and uh, flat out told the Congress that the FAA really wasn't capable of uh, fulfilling their mandate and asked the Congress to change their legislative charter, but uh, nothing happened. So in the scenario that we have now, there's definitely a conflict of interest. You're saying that the FAA really isn't there for primarily for the safety of the consumer, but they are there to promote the airlines. Okay, that's what they're doing now. So what are the problems? What 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 are the safety issues? Well, probably the, the biggest issue that comes to mind right now is the lack of air traffic controllers. Back in 2006, the FAA imposed work rules on the air traffic control workforce, and the controllers left in droves. Uh, this was late in 2006, and by 2008, the FAA was losing controllers at a rate of six per day, 
and ended up with 11, about 11,000 controllers, which was the fewest number of controllers since the strike. Uh, they have been hiring since then, but uh, the FAA likes to tell the flying public and the Congress that they have 15,000 air traffic controllers, but that's inaccurate because on any given day, 25 to 30 percent of the workforce is in some form of training. So really what we're looking at is, is uh, somewhere between 10,500 uh, certified air traffic controllers and uh, a little over 11,000, which is still pretty close to that level in 1981. So what, where does that put us in terms of safety when you only have 11,000 air traffic controllers in the whole country on any you know, given day working? So then how does that affect our safety? I mean, I know one of the things that you mentioned in the book is, first of all, a lot of them are inexperienced, number one. That's not a good thing. Uh, they're overworked. They're tired because there are so few of them. So I think that I have read that you said that some of them only get two hours of sleep a, a night, and they are then on the job for, what, 14 right, hours? They work, yeah, they work eight-hour shifts. And uh, there was a big scandal this past summer, which most people will remember, where there were a bunch of air traffic controllers reportedly falling asleep. And a lot of that has to do with the shift work. Uh, generally speaking, controllers work different shifts every day of the week. And on their Thursday, they may go in at 7 a.m. in the morning and uh, work until uh, 3 o'clock in the afternoon and then come back at, at 11 o'clock that night and work until 7 o'clock the next morning. Uh, one of the things that the FAA did in conjunction with the National Air Traffic Controllers Association was they reached an agreement and so that instead of controllers having eight hours off between shifts, they now have nine hours off between shifts. But in my view, that's just a Band-Aid approach. Uh, back in 1975, the FAA's own Civil Aeronautical Medical Institute released a report to the FAA recommending against the very schedule uh, that controllers have been working all these years. Uh, one of the things that they also mentioned was that perhaps controllers could work a month of the same shift. I mean, there are a number of different options out there. There are pros and cons to everything, I'm sure, but there's got to be something better than uh, what's happening now. I mean, just uh, ordering right controllers not to fall asleep is not going to work. I, I didn't hear you. I'm sorry. Yeah. What? what uh, I'm sorry, what part did you miss? I, did, I missed the part that you, I, I started to say that right now we have inexperienced, overworked right. uh, air traffic controllers. So that's definitely, obviously, who are falling asleep at the wheel. So, very, I mean, that's a huge safety issue. Okay, let's go on. What are some of the other things? I know one of the things you mentioned in the book was that we are antiquated. Our airports are antiquated. Our runways are are. are the infrastructure isn't good. We the control towers are antiquated in terms of the equipment they use. Um, that's pretty scary. Um, our security system doesn't work. Um, why don't you elaborate on that? Well, air traffic control facilities. We'll start with that. To have an expected useful life of about twenty-five to thirty years, and there are approximately four hundred and twenty of those, and fifty-nine percent are over thirty years old. Um, there have been a number of problems with uh, mold all over the country, uh, sick building syndrome for controllers. At the Atlanta Air Route Traffic Control Center, controllers had to hold umbrellas over the radar scopes to keep rainwater from falling on the equipment. Uh, there's a, a serious uh, asbestos problem at the Miami Air Route Traffic Control Center where the former uh, control room has been uh, closed off. There are uh, asbestos monitors in the facility to warn of any asbestos leaks. Uh, you know, it, it goes on and on. As far as the equipment, uh, the FAA is working on something called next-gen 
or uh, Next Generation, which is essentially a move from ground-based air traffic control to satellite-based air traffic control. Uh, part of the goal there is to allow aircraft to fly closer together and uh, reduce the separation standards. Uh, but every pilot that I talk to doesn't want to, uh, nobody wants to fly closer to another aircraft. Uh, so that, that's also a problem. You've talked about in the book uh, near misses. Give us some examples, specific examples of near misses and ones that weren't near misses where there were fatal uh, accidents, fatal crashes at different airports around the country. I mean, I always think it's good to uh, give us some, put a face on us, give it, put a face on it, give us some examples of, of uh, as I say, near misses and then ones that ex- actual crashes that occurred because of the, the lack of quality control. Well, between 2007 and 2010, air traffic control operational errors went up 81%, uh, even though total air traffic decreased more than 10% during that period. Uh, Interestingly enough, uh, errors in the Boston region shot up 114%. Uh, There's an incident I write about in the book where a controller deliberately committed an operational error by landing an aircraft on a closed runway. Uh, An adjacent runway was under uh, construction, and the runway that, that the controller put the aircraft on uh, had been closed to arrivals uh, so that vehicles could cross the departure into that runway. And uh, that's one of the, the biggest ones that sticks out in my mind. Uh, you know, there was no accident or incident. The aircraft landed safely. But the only way an aircraft can land on a closed runway is if the pilot declares an emergency, and that did not happen in that instance that I described in the book. So what happened to the air traffic controller? Was he dismissed? Was he fired? Uh, the air traffic controller was promoted into management. Uh, he thought better what he did later on and uh, uh, informed the manager, the supervisor. The supervisor's only words were, you can't do that. Uh, nothing happened uh, beyond that. The, superv- the supervisor went to went on to retire with his full pension. As I mentioned, the controller was promoted into management as in cur- and is currently in management with the FAA. And uh, one other controller involved was also promoted to another air traffic control facility, a third person involved was eventually fired over an unrelated incident. Uh, you know, Robert, this sounds like Wall Street. That you get, uh, you have, <laughs> you're fired, and you get a twenty million dollar severance pay. But anyway, uh, getting uh, back to specific examples, because you talk about that air crash, and I remember this one vividly that happened in Kentucky when the pilot uh, ended up um, taking off on the wrong runway. Um, and that was a result of a lot of misguided information and mistakes made by the air traffic controllers and or the pilot, I guess, as well. Yeah, the, the Comair, which operated the flight, took most of the blame. Uh, the FAA ended up paying 22% of the judgment. Um, when I say the FAA, it's actually the yeah. taxpayer that ended up doing that. But explain but, uh, the incident. What was the incident? What happened? Well... The, the aircraft was taxied to one runway and went to the wrong runway. The controller didn't see it uh, because he was performing administrative duties. Uh, he had also, uh, as the investigation unfolded, uh, they found out that he had only been uh, working on two hours of sleep. Uh, at that facility, they required two controllers to be on duty for the mid. Apparently, one controller called in sick, and management decided not to call in the overtime. They probably saved about $400.00 and instead it ended up costing uh, quite a few people their lives, and uh, it cost quite a bit of money. What's the worst accident that you document in the book that occurred as a result of this, you know, the 
the FAA um, and, and really the non-safe position that they've put us in, or the, the public. Well, as far as crashes go, it would have to be the crash over the Hudson River a few years ago where the air traffic controller was on a telephone uh, making a personal phone call when the when a helicopter collided with a, uh, another aircraft, a fixed-wing aircraft. Um, now the FAA has instituted rules where uh, fixed-wing and uh, helicopter traffic are going to be separated by altitude. And uh, this is not another example of what uh, Mary Schiavo, the former inspector general of the Department of Transportation, uh, brought up, uh, she coined the term the tombstone agency because the agency has a tendency to act only after uh, loss of life. What prompted you to write the book? It was, I mean, I, you know, as I was reading your uh, bio, uh, you are a former air traffic controller. Did you get fired? Were you a whistleblower? And I, you talk about that in the book. People who are whistleblowers often get fired or let go for other reasons. So that, um, and it seems to be somewhat of a pattern, you say, in the FAA? Right. I, I left of my own volition. Uh, I was a whistleblower. Uh, the FAA was under investigation uh, due to complaints I filed with the Department of Transportation Inspector General and the Office of Special Counsel for Prohibited Personnel Practices. Uh, at that point, I'd worked for the FAA about two decades. I'd been a former uh, union rep uh, who already had a target on his back, and uh, I, I just had enough. And uh, there's no job, no profession worth uh, your health. Uh, you know, if you have your health, you have everything, and that's that's one of the main reasons why I left. Uh, the, the job was just killing me. Um, you know, once you're a whistleblower. That's it. If you don't cross a T or dot an I, you're getting called down on the carpet, and it's all documented in the book. I mean, it just doesn't happen to air traffic controllers. It happens to, uh, you know, flight, flight standards employees who inspect the airline aircraft, et cetera. It, it goes on and on and on. But I wrote the book primarily because the public has an inaccurate picture of the FAA's philosophy, practices, and life-endangering errors. And I want to educate the public on what's going on at the FAA and I want the F the, the uh, flying public to contact not only their congressmen but the members of the House and Aviation Subcommittees, and demand change at the FAA and accountability for FAA officials and their actions. What do we do as the general public, though? I mean, given our economic and political times, I guess. I mean, how so many of the things you mentioned, we talked about a few, uh, cost a lot of money. I mean, it involves investing a lot of money into the infrastructure of the FAA. Do we have the funds or the money to do it, or do you have any specific kinds of suggestions, or is this just to raise, not just, but it's important to raise public awareness that we have a problem, and then we have to take it to our government leaders, and they have to figure out what to do and how to, to, to uh, eliminate the problem? Well, the government as a whole doesn't have the money required to rectify the situation. They just don't have the resources. But uh, education is the first step. Uh, the public has got to contact the Congress, uh, specifically, as I mentioned, the House and Aviation Subcommittee members, and they're listed on my website, crashandburn.us.com. Um, and, as I mentioned early on in the interview, the FAA has got to have a new mandate where safety is their sole mission, and that's up to Congress. You know, it, it's unbelievable. Every time there's an incident or accident, there are hearings held and recommendations made, and it seems like nothing happens. Uh, I worked with a number of controllers 
who were rehired. Uh, there were former PACO controllers fired in 1981 by Ronald Reagan, and to a man, they all said the FAA hasn't changed. And this is this is going back, uh, you know, over over a period of 25 years. You know, I this isn't exactly related to it, but I was in Mongolia this summer, and we flew around the country in in small jets, and. It was interesting because, I mean, some of the airports were not large, but similar to ours that we have in the United States. And each of the airports, the, the security and, and this is, you know, this is Mongolia, the, the, the schedule, the time, we were always right on time, right on schedule, things were well organized. And I was making the comparison, you know, between the, the Mongolia and the United States. And we really didn't come out on top when it came to those kinds of, of, of of conditions, which is really well, sad, which is what you're saying in the book. Well, yeah, well, what, weather, weather certainly is a big factor in on-time performance for the airlines and a country as big as the United States. Uh, you know, if, if there's a weather event in Chicago or some other big hub, it's going to have a ripple effect throughout the country. But uh, one of the other issues is that airlines like to schedule their flights at about the same time, and that's another reason why there, there are problems. So can you elaborate on that? Each airline wants to schedule, you mean, because that's to facilitate the, like, business people, or if they, so there's going to be, a, you know, a business flight from D.C. to New York, so all the airlines want to get in on the 7 o'clock in the morning flight? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And the FAA yeah. has, has, has made threats to the airlines before that if they didn't work on that issue, that the FAA was going to take care of it for them. And uh, I think there's been some improvement, but... For the most part, the airlines still are up to the same tricks. Have, have we mentioned? Do you you know during our conversation? Have we mentioned all the, the what you would consider the key safety issues, or are there others? Well, there are other uh, key safety issues. One is airline outsourcing of repairs, and uh, that's something that's uh, really come to the forefront in Congress uh, since last year. Uh, specifically, uh, between 2002 and 2010, the FAA levied fines against virtually every U.S. air carrier in 300 cases of either improper maintenance or investigated close to 3,000 maintenance violations. Um, the Inspector General of the Department of Transportation re- released a report last year um, uh, blaming the airlines for having critical maintenance performed at facilities not certified by the FAA. And this is where resources come into play. I mean, it's very difficult for the FAA to uh, oversee the 4,000 maintenance facilities in the United States, but yet they they have to go overseas to Asia and Central America, and Brazil even does some heavy maintenance for the airlines, and they have to be able to oversee those as well, and it's just not possible. So as a a flying public, and uh, I being one of them, how can we protect ourselves? Like the next flight, is there a way to do that? Let's say the next flight that I take to Chicago to visit my family, what do I do? I get in the um, JFK and I'm, is there anything that I can do or be observant of or is it just, or is it just the cost of, of doing business with the FAA? Well, you definitely want to be cognizant of your surroundings when you're on the aircraft. You want to want to read the uh, aircraft safety card. You want to play, pay attention to the safety briefing. Uh, but beyond that, we're really all of us, including myself, are just just flying on faith. And as far as I'm concerned, that's not good enough. I mean, 
an absence of accidents does not mean the system is as safe as it should be. And again, the only way really to get any change is for people to contact Congress and demand the change. At some point, you know, they're going to listen. I mean, there are people in Congress that know what's going on, that they want to do something. But, uh, again, they've got to change the legislative mandate of the FAA so that safety is the sole mission and the airlines are on their own. They already have uh, lobbyists. They have the Air Transport Association, which is a huge lobby group for the airlines. Let them take care of lobbying for the uh, airlines. The FAA should be focused solely on safety. Are you the only one at the, right now who's really out there and, uh, you know, promoting the kinds of things that you're talking about, or are there other groups? Uh, are you the sole voice? Well, I'm the first frontline air traffic controller to ever write a book like this. Uh, the National Air Traffic Controllers Association is uh, very concerned about passenger safety, and they're constantly involved in uh, these issues and talking to Congress and the FAA about uh, ways to improve safety. Why did you choose to become a air traffic controller, and how long did you do it for? I did it for two decades. Uh, I grew up around aviation. My father was a general aviation pilot, and when they moved to Miami back in the mid-'60s from Pittsburgh, uh, most of my uh, parents' friends were uh, pilots, flight attendants, and air traffic controllers. And... um, it, w- it was just something that I grew up with. I was always interested in, in airplanes and aviation in general, and that led me to take the air traffic control exam back in 1987, and I was hired in 1988 and, and went from there. And during your experience in those 20 years, I mean, uh, it would seem to me that anyone who does it, um, you have to have a certain head or mentality or ability to, I mean, I think about the air traffic controllers like here in New York at Kennedy, Newark, and LaGuardia, like to be able to, I guess, make decisions, split-second decisions that impact on thousands of people. Um, How do you do that? I think it's something that you either have or you don't. It's very difficult to to teach somebody who doesn't have the the skill, the innate skill to do the job. Uh, You know, for instance, I mean, the FAA won't hire anybody after they're 31 years of age. Uh, It's a young person's game. The mandatory retirement age is 56. And, by the way, next year, approximately 7,100 controllers are going to reach the mandatory retirement age of 56. And uh, unless the FAA gives them waivers, that's that's a huge portion of the workforce that's going to be gone. And over the next decade, uh, the FAA could lose as many as 11,000 air traffic controllers. Yeah. 56 is the retirement age. For pilots, it's, what, 65 now. They up the age from 60 to 65. So you can be a pilot for almost 10 years longer or 10 years longer. Right. They, they've talked about that with air traffic controllers, but I can tell you that uh, a lot of air traffic controllers are probably ready to retire after doing only 10 years in the agency. Uh, the shift work, uh, the traffic, the draconian treatment by FAA management, Alt ends up taking a toll on the controller, and uh, in my in my view, probably twenty years is enough. I mean, uh, do you think, Robert? We only have three minutes left. Do you think if if you start with upgrading, let's say, upgrading the equipment, and you're going to have much, if you have more high tech equipment, the satellite systems, all of those kinds of things, and also more high tech equipment in the tower itself, that it would you 
we'll get more young people um, who are more well-equipped, who perhaps it doesn't take as much strain to, to do the job, um, you know, with better equipment and better standards for, you know, uh, operating. Well, that's a piece of the puzzle, uh, but there's only so, so far that uh, automation can take you. The main thing that the FAA's got to do is they've got to get more certified air traffic controllers in these facilities. Virtually every facility nationwide is understaffed. And not only are the controllers tired because of, of the shift work, the, the long hours, uh, the traffic, uh, the overtime, the, the mandatory overtime, but virtually every controller is training someone. And that takes an extra toll on a controller when they have to train someone who doesn't know the job, how to do the job. It makes it far more stressful. Well, we're going to have to say goodbye, but, boy, you certainly opened up my eyes, and uh, I know you've done that for my listeners and hopefully for the general public because we do have to do something about it. Uh, your book, Crash and Burn, The Bureau Pathology of the Federal Aviation Administration, Robert Misich, and you can go to his website at crashandburn.us.com, and you can buy the book online bookstores everywhere, Amazon.com. It's been a pleasure talking to you today. I guess I'm never going to be able to fly again in the same way that I have been, but I need to, I guess, uh, get out of my denial and face it and do something about it and, as you say, make uh, call my congressperson. Exactly. Well, being forearmed is, uh, forewarned is forearmed, so you can look at it that way. Right. Great. Thanks so much for being on the show today. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks, Robert. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone. You have been listening to the Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com. You can listen to us live every Wednesday from 10 to 11 Eastern Time. Um, I hope you enjoyed the show. Have a great week, and we'll see you next Wednesday. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of the Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.